Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 29. So open your Bibles and turn to Romans 2. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible in the, in the seat in front of you, you can find Romans 2, verse 12, on page 884. So go ahead and turn there. In fact, if you don't have a Bible and you're using a pew Bible, you can just go ahead and keep it. That's our uh, gift to you. Our sermon is entitled, God's Righteous Judgment Against Unrighteousness and Religion, which is kind of a, a counterintuitive title, but we'll kind of take a look at it as we, as we go. What we've been seeing in the book of Romans thus far is that uh, God, Paul is trying to kind of establish and argue for his thesis uh, that the righteousness of God um, is revealed in the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of sinners. That's kind of his thesis in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. To establish that thesis, he has to first prove that humanity is in fact under the wrath and condemnation of God. You can't save someone who doesn't need saving in the first place. And so his first point, Romans 1, 2, and the first half of 3, is to establish that human beings do in fact need saving, that they are under the judgment uh, of God for their unrighteousness. And he kind of takes it in two parts, kind of divides humanity up into two segments, the uh, non-religious on the one hand and the religious on the other hand, right? So he's going to speak to both of them in corresponding chapters. If you're non-religious, uh, don't think that you, uh, you know, have, have an excuse before God or that you will escape the judgment of, of God. Uh, and, if you, and that's chapter 1. And then chapter 2 is if you're religious, if you're a religious person to the nation of Israel, then don't think that you will escape the, the judgment of, of God. And so uh, he's kind of been proving that point in chapter 1, 18 to 32, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Now in verses 12 and following, he's really going to kind of drill down on, zoom in on, and look very particularly at um, the idea of religious hypocrisy. So he's been talking about how religious people, uh, members of the nation of Israel, need uh, to be saved. They, the, the judgment of God is coming against them as well. And he's going to specifically talk at length this morning about religious hypocrisy, right? Uh, being quick to judge and quick to teach, but not actually practicing what you preach. And so claiming to be religious, claiming to be an authority on God and spiritual things while rebelling against God and breaking his, his law. So, spoiler alert, he's not too keen on it. God is not too keen on the idea of religious hypocrisy. Let's read verses 12 through 29, and, and then take a few minutes unpacking it and discovering what God has to say about this, this idea. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But you who call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God and you know his will and you approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, 
And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness and an instructor to the foolish and a teacher of children, right? And you have the law, uh, having in the law the embodiment and the knowledge of truth. For those of you who that is about you, you teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we ask your blessing on these next few minutes as we study your word together. We pray that you would come here with us and meet with us, speak through me, speak to us. Help us to see and savor Christ so that we might be changed and conformed to his image. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so all who have sinned without the law will also perish with the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That is essentially a restating, a summary statement of like the first clause kind of summarizes Romans 1, 18 to 32. The second clause summarizes Romans 2, 1 through 11, right? All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. He's saying that the non-religious people outside of the nation of Israel who don't worship God and don't follow the law, they don't even know the law, they've likely never even heard of God's law, they worship other gods, they follow other religions, they engage in all kinds of uh, immorality and idolatry. God's judgment is coming against those people. They, even though they don't have the law, they will still perish without the, the law. The analogy for today would be people who don't identify as Christians, right? Non-religious people, uh, overtly secular, even anti-Christian people, who, people who have never heard the gospel, Right, uh, These people who have sinned without the law will perish without bread because because Paul's argument in Romans 1 was even though they don't have the law, even though they don't have a written copy of God's law in front of them by which to be held accountable, they still have, uh, they still are human beings made in God's image, right? So they're accountable to their creator, the one who made them. They live in a world that was created by God. God's invisible attributes are, are evident everywhere in creation. You can't be a human being living in this world without having some semblance of knowledge of God and therefore accountability to, to God, right? No one, no one suffers under the judgment of God simply because they 
heard the gospel and didn't believe the gospel. Rather, people suffer under the judgment of God because they sinned against the God who created them, the God who has ownership rights over them, and the God that they are accountable to. We have, right, religious or non-religious, we've rebelled against God, we've committed cosmic treason against God, and we are deserving of judgment and, and punishment from God. That's Romans 1. Now, the second half of the sentence kind of corresponds with uh, verses 1 through 11. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, all who have sinned under the law, that's the people within the nation of Israel, Jewish people or religious people who sinned under the law, they will be judged by the law. So he's saying, you know, those of you who have the law, right? Uh, if you don't have the law, don't think that you can appeal to not having the law as an excuse and therefore not and, and escape God's judgment. If you do have the law, don't think that you can appeal to having the law as an excuse and therefore you will escape God's judgment. He says, you who have the law, you, you condemn others when they break the law. Well, when you do that, you're really condemning yourself because you're acknowledging the legitimacy of the law as an instrument as a moral standard that can be used to judge people and render a verdict against them and find them guilty. When you use the law to judge someone else, you are opening yourself up to the possibility of being judged by it yourself. Paul continues in verses 1 through 11 that, that the religious people are presuming upon God's grace and abusing God's grace. So he says, if you have deluded yourself into thinking that God is going to accept you simply because you are a member of the nation of Israel, or, or because you identify as a Christian, right? God is not obligated to accept or bless anyone based on their religious or denominational affiliation. Again, in today's, the analogy for today would be people who, you know, come from a Christian family, their parents are believers, long-standing member of my, my church, religious track record, impressive religious things that I've accomplished. There's no way that God could ever judge someone like me, regardless of whether I actually believe in Jesus or not, regardless of whether I actually repent of my sin and obey God or not. Obviously, I have an inside track. Obviously, God is obligated to, to bless me and accept me simply because of all of these religious things that I have, have done. And Paul says, just because you have the law doesn't mean that God will not judge you. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, in verses 13 through 15, each one of these kind of correspond to either, either half of verse 12, right? Verse 13 corresponds to uh, 12b, right? The second clause in verse 12 is about religious people, and so is verse 13. The first clause in verse 12 is about non-religious people, and so are verses 14 and 15. So we'll kind of take them in that, in that order. But yeah, it says, For it is not the hearers of the law... Who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So he's speaking to religious people, members of the nation of Israel. He says, don't think that just because you have, just because you possess the law, that that has some sort of magical ability to save you or, or excuse you from God's judgment. You actually have to obey it. You actually have to, uh, you know, a, a, a religious person a member of the nation of Israel, a person who identifies as a Christian, uh, if you're religious but disobey the law, it's no better than, than being a, a Gentile or a non-religious person. 
So he's kind of restating what he said in the second half of verse 12. Verses 14 to 15, restating what he said in the first half of verse 12. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Right? So the objection from the non-religious person is, obviously I can't be held accountable to obey God because I've never heard the law of God. So that's crazy to, you know, there's no speed limit sign posted. You can't give me a speeding ticket, right? What, you know, that's not, that's not fair. And Paul is saying, yeah, but you know the speed limit, right? Like everyone, religious, non-religious, Jewish, Gentile, even if they don't have the law, if you observe them, you'll find that they, by nature, at times, do what the law requires, and they show that they are a, a law to them, themselves, right? If you, sometimes, Gentiles, non-religious people, relatively speaking, are pretty good people. If you leave the nation of Israel, if Paul, you know, traveled to some faraway tribe to a, to a group of people who had never heard of God and they're worshiping idols, he might find that they just, for whatever reason, happen to obey several of the Ten Commandments, right? Maybe their tribe realized long ago, maybe they have a rule in their tribe against murdering each other because they realize that if we don't, conflicts will es- escalate and, and our tribe will kind of kill itself out of existence. Or maybe they have rules against theft because they realize that long ago we need to have some semblance of property rights or else there's not, it's just going to be chaos and, and conflict. And so you might on occasion find that there are people who've never heard of God's law but who instinctively obey parts of it anyway. And when they do, that's not, Paul says when, pe- when people who haven't heard the law obey the law of God, that doesn't mean that they won't be punished. In fact, quite the opposite. That means that they are all the more accountable to obey God and all the more accountable for when they do disobey God because they actually have the law baked in, right? Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. So when non-religious people obey the law of God, they show that deep down they really do know the law. Even if they say that they don't, even if they think that they don't, and could pass a lie detector test to that effect, right? Somewhere deep down lurking in their heart is the law of God that was written on their heart by virtue of being a human being created in God's image, and therefore they are accountable to follow that um, part of, of the law, right? You'll, I mean, there, there are non-Christians who are great parents. There are non-Christians who have a very tender conscience when it comes to stealing or cheating on their taxes or committing adultery, right? And that's because God's law is written on their hearts. You don't have to be particularly religious and you don't have to identify as a Christian to have the law of God, you know, kind of impressed on your soul so that you have a conscience that's kind of pulling you to obey it. And that conscience that, that kind of is prompting you to obey it and convicting you when you don't obey it, even if you never heard it, that's the very thing that will a- accuse you. That's the very thing that will hold you accountable, right? It says that they show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day. And so the, the language of the grammar here in the Greek kind of implies that that more of the, the, the preponderance of evidence, the, the vast majority of the time, our conscience is going to accuse us. And even in a small minority, even it might excuse us from time to time. And so what Paul's saying is, uh, there, 
there are going to be times when people who don't believe the gospel, people who haven't even heard the gospel, when they're going to instinctively know what's right and what's wrong, and they're going to do what's wrong. And in those moments, their conscience is going to accuse them and render them guilty before God. There's, going to be a, there's also going to be times when their conscience is going to tell them what's right and what's wrong, and they're going to do what's right. And in those specific moments, their conscience is actually going to excuse them before God. But the fact of the matter is, on the whole, they will be judged and condemned by God because on the whole, their conscience is showing that they intuitively know some semblance of God's law and therefore not following it is, is, um, is reason for them to be punished and, and, and judged. The end result is that their behavior, non-religious people, their, their behavior proves that they know the law of God and, and God is therefore right and just to hold them accountable to it. So being religious does not save you, does not give you an excuse before God, right? Hear, hearing the law is not what saves, it's doing the law. You're obligated to obey it and guilty when you don't. And being non-religious does not give you an excuse before God, because your conscience bears witness and shows that God's law is written on your heart, you're obligated to obey God's law and guilty when you don't. Paul has, has pretty much set up that every single person, righteous, unrighteous, religious, unreligious, we are all accountable to God, and we, are all, we all stand guilty before God. We are all on that day, according to Paul's gospel, God is going to judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We're all going to be judged. No one gets special treatment. No one gets a free pass. The secrets of everyone's hearts, the deep recesses of our soul that we're ashamed of, the the stuff that you've done that you just think, yeah, I'm not going to tell anyone about that one. I'm going to take that one with me to my grave. Uh, that, That comes out in the open when you stand before God and we will be exposed and judged accordingly. So Paul has set up this kind of inarguable uh, proposition that all people from Mother Teresa to Adolf Hitler, all people are going to stand before God and be judged. No one is going to have an excuse. No one is going to get to say it's not fair, it's not good, it's not right for me to be judged by God. We're all going to be judged by God. In verse 17, Paul is then going to kind of zoom in on the religious people. That's the, he's going to spend the rest of this passage looking at religious people, but specifically uh, people who are religious hypocrites, people who uh, claim to be religious but don't necessarily live uh, as if they're religious. They, 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 don't, they don't practice what they preach, right? And he has this big kind of long four verses, 17 through 20, this kind of description of the religious person, or at least how the religious person fancies himself, like what, what he uh, aspires to be and what he envisions himself as being. He says, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God, you're so proud of, of you know, everything that you do that's religious and you know God's will better than anyone else and you approve of what's good and, and you're instructed from the law, you have it, you own it, it's in your house, right? And if you're sure that you, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, Right? Everyone else in the world is blind people groping around in the darkness, but you're a guide and you're a light to those who are in the darkness. You're an instructor to the foolish. You're a teacher of children. You have the law, you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Right? If that's how you see yourself, right, again, which in Paul's day would be a member of the nation of Israel, in our day would be a person who identifies as religious. Identifies as a 
as a Christian, if that's, that's kind of how you see yourself and who you think you are, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While preaching against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law of God, dishonor God by, by breaking the law. So there's these kind of rapid-fire questions, right? The big, long, flowery description of the religious person, someone who understands themselves to be righteous, and then these four rapid-fire questions, right? Intending to, you know, like a, like a brushback pitch in baseball, right? If you're crowding the plate, like he's, he's confronting and, and even accusing, right? You're, you're all, you love to be the teacher. You you know, love to make sure that everyone knows how much you know. You love when other people listen to you. You, you don't care much for listening to others, but you love it when people listen to you and acknowledge your authority, right? But if you're really being honest, you who teach others, do you teach yourself? Do you actually practice what you, what you preach, right? You who preaching, preaching and stealing, do you steal? So, I mean, these are, Paul is writing to and referencing the same religious leaders that Jesus was constantly, you know, confronting and embattled with in, in his, his day. He called them thieves and robbers, you know, stealing. These are people who got ridiculously rich as the leaders of the religious establishment and the, the synagogue and the, and the temple for overcharging poor people so that they could come in and worship God. And Jesus says that is... You're, you preaching and stealing, but you're, you're stealing. Or these are the same people Jesus said, he confronted them and said, uh, you have parents who are elderly and poor, and your job is to take care of them, but you have this kind of convenient way of laundering all of your money through shell corporation, through like a religious clause in the Old Testament where you can say, I'm going to give this money to the temple and therefore I can go to my parents and say, wish I could help you, but I'm broke. I don't have any money. But then you can kind of go back and pull the money out of the temple whenever you want to to spend it on yourself and your lavish lifestyle. Jesus says, that's, you're stealing. Paul says, sometimes people who understand themselves to be the most religious and who represent themselves to others as the most religious the people who purport to be the, the most adamantly and vehemently opposed to stealing, sometimes they are actually guilty of stealing. Right? They take things that don't belong to them when no one's looking. They use work time to do things that are not in the best interest of their employer or, you know, find, take advantage of gray areas and loopholes that they know they probably shouldn't, but they just kind of turn the other way. You who talk about how bad adultery is, how bad sexual immorality is, right? And how much trouble everyone is going to be in who engages in it. Do you do that? Are, are, are all of your interactions with members of the opposite sex totally above board? Is there any that your spouse don't know about? Or if she did know about them, or if he did know about them, they would not uh, approve. They would be concerned or jealous. Do you Look at inappropriate content or watch movies or TV shows. With, right? In Matthew 5, Jesus takes uh, these kinds of, of ideas and raises the bar on, on all of them. Right? He, says, he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. 
But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you've already committed murder in your heart. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a person with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. But I say that's not enough. You have to love your enemy. You've heard it say, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So basically don't uh, have a disproportionate retaliatory response. But I'm telling you, uh, turn the other cheek. Don't even just forgive and don't even have a response uh, at, at all, right? In Matthew 5, Jesus is raising the bar and showing people that uh, they think they're righteous, but they are actually not as innocent as they think that they are. They are guilty of the very things that they teach against. And, and Paul is saying, boasting in the law would be appropriate and reasonable if you actually kept the law. He's looking at religious people who boast in how good they keep the law and judge others for how poorly they keep the law. And he says, that would make sense if you did, in fact, keep the law. But your violation of the law belies and undermines your boasting in it. The standard is far higher than you think it is and you give it credit for, and you are far more guilty than you think that you are. That's a big deal, right? Being guilty before God is a big deal for anyone, for any reason. But it's an especially big deal for a religious hypocrite. Because when a person who purports to be religious and identifies as, as religious breaks the law, verses 23 to 24, there are serious consequences that come from it. You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Sin is a, is a really big deal for any number of reasons, right? Sin, sin is a big deal because, you know, at just, you know, Common sense because it's a violation of God's law. God is sovereign. God is holy. God deserves for his law to be followed. Sin is the breaking of God's law, so it's a big deal. Sin is a big deal because, because it separates us from God, right? Sin is a big deal because we, you know, Adam and Eve sinned and they're kicked out of the, the garden. When we, when we sin, we no longer experience the joy and nearness and presence of God like we once did in our lives. Sin is a big deal for any number of reasons for any person, but particularly for religious people and for religious hypocrites, sin is a really big deal because when we sin, it affects God's reputation in the world. Other people think things about God based on right, the degree to which we practice what we preach. Right? The more that we are guilty of religious hypocrisy and sin, the more it actually diminishes the reputation of God in the world, the glory of God in the... I mean, imagine, imagine you pull out your phone, look at your news app, and just read about a really bad thing from a really bad person, right? Uh, drunk driver kills a person in a car accident. Career criminal commits armed robbery. Con man takes advantage of elderly people. 
human trafficking, child right? Imagine a really bad thing, and imagine how you feel when you read that article or see that, you know, that, that thing on the, the news. Angry, right? You're, you're angry at them. You're angry about what they've done. You're sad for the, for the victims. There's a lot of emotions that you experience when you hear about a person doing something bad. You might not think much about God, though, because you're thinking, it's a bad person who did a bad thing. Now imagine that you read an article or see a thing, right? Imagine that the drunk driver who killed a person in his car was a Christian pastor whose entire ministry, he was famous for preaching against drunkenness and alcohol. He'd written books about why alcohol is so bad. And now we find out that the whole time he's been a closet alcoholic, multiple DUIs, used royalties from his books about why alcohol is bad to, to cover up all these DUIs and keep them out of the, the news, right? Imagine, right, the, the guy stealing money actually runs a Christian ministry for people who are poor and all the f- m- m- donations that he was soliciting were never making their way to poor people. They were being funneled to an offshore bank account, right? The child abuse... Is not is not some random you know creep. It's it's a it's a it's a church. It's happening in the church. It's a spiritual authority figure who's doing unspeakable things and then telling his victims, if you ever tell anyone what happened, you'll go to hell. Right? The the pro life, the super religious pro life activist who's always talking about abortion comes out that he's a serial adulterer and he's pressured all of his mistresses to get abortions. So that no one, so that he can keep, you know, doing his marches and praying on the steps of the Capitol building, but he, at that moment, is guilty of the very sins. Right, all of the terrible, awful sins. When, when you consider that they're done by a religious person or a person who who claims and identifies to follow God and to be an authority on all things God, you might still feel angry like you would if it was a bad person. You might still feel sad. For the victims, like you would if it was a bad person, but you also might wonder about God a little bit. If that's if that's what following God actually looks like, if that's what the followers of God actually do, maybe God is not as good as they say He is. Maybe God is not as real as they they say he is. Maybe God doesn't deserve my worship as much as they say that he does. I mean, if all of God's followers are hypocrites, if they all say one thing and do another, if they all pretend to be holy and judge everyone else for their sin and make me, a a non-religious person, feel guilty and, and shame, right? but then behind closed doors they're guilty of the very same things that they're condemning me for, maybe the whole religion thing is a is a joke. Maybe it's a scam. Maybe it's a a con. Maybe I'll take my chances on my own instead of believing in a God who all of his followers are liars and hypocrites. The sins of religious people, the, the hypocrisy of religious people can affect God's reputation and God's glory in the world. It can cause God's name to be dishonored. It can cause God's name to be blasphemed among among the nations. 
the writer of Hebrews says, when those who have once been enlightened, those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, right, those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, right, when believers, right, when, when, when people who identify as religious, when they fall away, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. And they are subjecting him to public disgrace. When, when people who identify as, as Christians, when people who are religious say one thing and do another, when they claim to be religious in public, but in private they're indulging in the very sins that they're condemning, it subjects God to public disgrace. It affects God's reputation in the world and it affects God's glory. And God cares deeply about his glory. So verses 17 to 24, looking at, talking about this this kind of phenomenon of religious hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another, kind of the the counterexample. It's the description of what we should not do. And then in verses 25 and following, we're going to see, uh, you know, what, what true, by the end of this text, we're going to see what true, real religion looks like, what we should strive to be, be doing as followers of God. He says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision actually becomes uncircumcision. Circumcision was the sign of entrance into the people of God in the Old Covenant. It was synonymous with being a Jewish person, being a member of the nation of Israel. Right? If you were born into a Jewish family, you were circumcised as a baby. If you were a Gentile and you converted to Judaism, you became circumcised as a, as a grown-up. To say that you were circumcised was the same thing as saying that you were Jewish. And so Paul is saying, if you claim to be a believer but you act like an unbeliever. I don't want to be harsh, but you might as well be an unbeliever because that is about how valuable that claim will be for you when you stand before God. If you sin against God with a high hand, disregard his commandments, live for yourself rather than him, honor yourself more than him, love and serve yourself more than you love and serve your neighbor. If you, if you live like that, and then when you go to stand before God, you say, well, I was baptized as a child. I, I, you know, I always identified as a, as a Christian. I worshiped at the temple. I went to church. I took communion. If you live like an unbeliever, and then appeal to religious rituals or ceremonies, God is going to say, that means nothing to me. You might as well have not have been, you might as well have not been circumcised, not undergone any of those religious ceremonies or rituals, because, because they in and of themselves are of no value. I desire mercy and obedience, not sacrifices and rituals. Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Paul says it's actually actually more useful to God for a person who 
is not, for a person who's not religious, doesn't do any of the religious ceremonies and observances, that the person who is not religious, you know, doesn't do any of the, the, the rituals, but actually obeys the law, is more useful to God. God is less offended by that person than he is by the person who does all of the religious ceremonies and rituals, but does not obey the law. I mean, ultimately, everyone circumcised or not, religious or not, everyone who does not trust in Christ is going to, you know, be judged by God and condemned by God for their sin. But Paul is saying, given the choices between two different people, on the one hand, a religious person who observes all of the rituals, but his heart is hard and he engages in unrepentant sin, or on the other hand, a non-religious person who does not care about spiritual things, but tries to be a good and decent and honest person, if given a choice between those two people, Paul says God is more offended by the religious hypocrite than he is by the non-religious person. And speaking in terms of, you know, how the old covenant worked itself out, if a man who is uncircumcised, there's a Gentile who keeps the precepts of the law and he trusts in Christ. Well, his uncircumcision, right, he's, he's saying uh, a, a person outside of the nation of Israel can trust in Christ and obey the law and, and actually be reconciled to God and be treated as if he was a member of the nation of, of Israel. It has, it has little to do with religious observance and rituals and, and, and you know, uh, practices, and it has everything to do with keeping the law and ultimately trusting in the Savior. Then he who is physically uncircumcised verse 27, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. So, for you religious people who look down your nose at everyone else, right, like the older brother in the, in the parable of the prodigal son who stayed home and did what his father told him to do, and then he judges and condemns and resents the younger brother who comes home with his hat in hand, Paul says, you religious people who, who judge and condemn all of the non-religious people around you, I've got news for you. God is more offended by you than he, is by, than he is by them. And so your condemnation of them will actually serve to condemn you before, before God. The very people that you're condemning will be used as evidence to condemn you, right? If, it, if it's right and necessary and good for non-religious people to be condemned then it's even more right and necessary and good for religious hypocrites to be, to be condemned. With all that in view, these last two verses, 28 and 29, it's Paul's exhortation. His instruction, his encouragement is telling us what to do in view, like, in view of everything that we've established, that God hates religious hypocrisy. Since we've established that, here's what I want you to do in light of it. No one is a Jew, no one is a religious person who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision, religious observances, merely outward and physical. One is a Jew, one is a religious person if they are one inwardly, and circumcision, religious practices are a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Real religion is not a matter of external symbols and I mean anyone can say that they believe whatever they want 
And anyone can go through the motions of religious observance that comport with what they say that they believe about, about God. Anyone can do that. That's religion that is outward and physical. And Paul says, that is not really religion at all. That's a sham. No one is a Christian who is merely one externally or outwardly and physically. No one is a Christian just because they say that they are. No one is a Christian just because they've gone through some religious observances, just because they've been baptized, just because they check the boxes of the things that Christians are supposed to do. That's not real Christianity. That's not real, true religion. Real religion, real Christianity is internal. It's a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and said that they were like a a cup that's been cleaned on the outside, but the inside has been left with grime and filth and disease. He said they're like whitewashed tombs. The outside appears beautiful and immaculate, but the inside is full of dead people's bones and everything else that's un clean. Paul is saying, if you want to know what real Christianity is, it's not merely external. It's not whether you do the right religious observances or not. Real Christianity is internal. It's not a matter of whether your body has been circumcised. It's a matter of whether your heart has been circumcised. It's not a matter of whether your your, body you know, it's not a matter of the physical act of taking communion. It's a matter of trusting in your heart in the Savior that communion points to. It's not a matter of being baptized, dunked in water or not. It's a matter of your heart having been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Outward, external religion is a matter of what you say and the rituals that you observe and how you make sure that you come across to everyone else around you. That's worthless. Inward, internal religion is a matter of your heart trusting in Jesus instead of yourself, loving Jesus more than yourself, and then having that love and trust manifest itself in how you live and act, particularly how you live and act when no one else is watching. Anyone can manufacture the appearance of religion for other people to see. What really matters is trusting God in your heart and having that trust be evidenced by a life of godliness and repentance and faith, even when no one is watching. And for that person, his praise is not from man, but from God. If you're religious merely externally, your praise comes from man. Congratulations, right? You've received your reward in full. But if, you're, if your religion, if your Christianity is not merely external, but it's internal of the heart by the Spirit, then your praise might not come from man. It probably won't. But your praise will come from God. Un, unlike man, God is not fooled by external religion. God is not impressed by lip service. God is not impressed by someone who goes through all of the religious motions. God sees the heart. He knows the heart. So while religious hypocrites might receive praise from man, the one who practices real, true, the the one who trusts in God, loves God, seeks to honor God, even when no one is looking, 
he will be praised by God. He's not, he's not concerned with self-promotion like the externally religious person is. So he might not get noticed as much. He might not get all of the praise and recognition. His faithfulness and obedience might go unseen. But not by God. God knows and discerns the thoughts of a man's heart. God knows when we're going through the religious motions to impress people. And he knows when we are obeying because we genuinely love him and want to honor him. And frankly, praise from God is what matters. It might not come with... uh, It might not come with instant gratification like praise from man does, but praise from God is what matters because back in verse 16, like we saw, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, back in chapter 2, verse 16, we see that God is the one who will judge the secrets of all of our hearts. So there is coming a day when you are going to stand before God, Religious, non-religious, old, young, male, female, every single person without exception, without distinction, we're all going to stand before God. And we're all going to give an account to God for the life that we lived, not for the religious rituals that we observed, not for the beliefs that we claim to have held. We're going to give an account to God for the life that we lived. Did we live a life of righteousness? Did we meet the standard of righteousness that God's righteousness requires God to require. And when it's revealed that we did not, the next question will be, well then did you trust in Christ? Internally, as a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Not did you pretend to believe in God Did you tell everyone that you believed in God? Did you go through all of the motions to represent that you believed in God so that everyone would think that you believed in God? But did you trust in Christ to save you? And did your trust in Christ manifest itself in your life through repentance and faith and humility and an earnest desire to obey and glorify God? That is the question that we're going to answer when we stand before him. God's righteous judgment is coming against those who rebel against him, both through sin and idolatry and through religious hypocrisy. But there is grace for those who repent and trust in Christ. Friends, let's be a church that trusts in Christ together from the heart, by the Spirit. Let's be a church that encourages one another to persevere in the faith together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that your judgment is coming against sin. It's coming against our sin. We, the people in this room, are deserving of your righteous wrath. And we acknowledge that we will be judged by the law and we will perish under the law. 
God, we confess the religious hypocrisy that lies at the foundation of so much of our our lives, right? We say one thing and we do another. We follow you outwardly but not inwardly. And we ask, Lord, we we pray and we plead. Please forgive us. Please change us. Please help us to trust in you and obey you from the heart by the Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.